0: You are listening to Uncommentary. Hey, folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's heartsandmindsbooks.com. And when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention Uncommentary, on some books you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation, but when they can, they do, and I really encourage you to check them out. Uh, He mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me, like, really happy. That's heartsandmindsbooks.com. You can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time, and then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you, and he can handle it. Uh, right there through your email, and uh, it's really, really encouraging to him, and so I encourage you to check him out. Well, back in 2010, I guess it was, um, I was able to go to Haiti two weeks after the earthquake had happened. Uh, I I didn't know a ton about Haiti. I knew some. My dad had been there uh, when I was a kid. We'd supported a missionary pastor there for a number of years, and my parents had supported a missionary family there for a number of years as well. So I knew uh, kind of where Haiti was and that it was a poor country and those kinds of things, but I didn't know anything really about Haiti. Uh, And so after I got back, uh, I started doing a little bit of research to try to figure out kind of what it was I had seen because the devastation was so severe and the poverty was so prevalent that um, I just kind of wanted to know what's going on there. So I found a book called Travesty in Haiti, um, by a guy named Tim Schwartz, Timothy T. Schwartz. And so I bought and read the book and man, there was so much, so much light going on. Like with every chapter, it seemed like there was a new revelation of, okay, well, that explains that, well, that explains this, uh, and really opened my eyes to the whole idea of humanitarian aid and how it doesn't work so often and the damage that it causes in the name of trying to help. Uh, just so much stuff I learned uh, from reading that book and this and the follow-ups to it as well. So I reached out. I don't even remember how I found him because he's not on any kind of social media. He, I mean, he was really hard to find on the Internet. He was so hard to find, in fact, that after I did get a hold of him and published an interview with him on my blog, that I was contacted by news organizations literally from around the world that the only way they could find him was through my blog. So they would contact me. I would contact him and connect to them. And that went on like that for months and months and months. Uh, so anyway, uh, Tim Schwartz is a good guy. This is our first conversation that we ever had in person, uh, over Skype. Uh, so anyway, I hope you enjoy this. This is fascinating information and I hope it opens up a world of questions for you. Well, my guest today is, um, I mean, expert is probably like the, the first grade, the elementary word to describe uh, his experience and his knowledge about the subject matter uh, today, uh, every time a budget passes in the United States, everybody gets all up in arms about how much money is going to help foreign countries and stuff like that. But most people don't even know what humanitarian aid represents from a national type budget. Well, Tim Schwartz sure does, because he's been in Haiti for uh, quite some time. Now, uh, Tim, did you go, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you went to Haiti as a graduate student and forgot how to get back to the United States. Is that what happened? <laughs>
1: That's right. Well, I came as a graduate student when I was working on my master's thesis. Okay. And then I went back and forth a few times, and and yeah, when I came to do my dissertation in Nineteen ninety four. Wow,
0: that is that is really amazing. Um, so you've written three three books, I think. Travesty in Haiti is the first one. Then you wrote one on birth rates or something in Haiti. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I've got one on. Well, it's, it's not just birth rates. It's uh, it's called Sex, Family, and Fertility. And it's about uh, birth rates, which are part of it, but it it addresses why the contraceptive campaigns failed in Haiti, and that the birth rates didn't come down. So it it really covers everything: your family structure, polygyny, uh, you know, and 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 there's a big focus on child labor in the family. You know, they go for the water, they work in the fields.
0: And then your third book is.
1: This is a great Haiti humanitarian swindle. That's uh, dearest to my heart. I picked up on it after the earthquake, but it gave me an opportunity because at that time there was a lot of tension in Haiti and we were being inundated, as you well know, mm-hmm. with um, foreign aid uh, organizations. So it gave me an opportunity to, to to specifically investigate and show the roots of a of a series of issues that were very, very hot at the time, so to speak. For example, the, the rapes, you know, they, they claim we're mm-hmm. having a rape epidemic. There was the camps, which got a great deal of attention. And what was fascinating, and then the orphans, of course, you know, they claimed mm-hmm. after the earthquake, there was two million uh, separated and lost children, which was just an absurdity. And what was most fascinating, I think the, the contribution of the book is just the extent of the exaggeration and the way that the press and the NGOs sort of articulated. Because the, the NGOs will feed the data and the information to the press, the press, which of course wants readership, right. they get these uh, sensationalist data and exaggerations, and then they publish it. And then, of course, the, the people—it's a—it's a mechanism for the for the NGOs, the aid organizations—to get donations, and particularly after the earthquake, because mm-hmm. because one thing is important here. You know, you started off talking about the government uh, the government support of foreign aid, but There's two facets, you know, there's the private donors and the government donors. Mm -hmm. We'll get back to that, I'm sure, in a a moment.
0: Uh, So, Tim Schwartz, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you, Marty. Um, So, you and I, uh, we were kind of joking beforehand, but for those of you who are listening, Tim and I, we've known each other for 11 years and we've never met, (laughs) and and we've never even spoken to each other until we made (laughs) this phone call to record this episode. Um, so let me just give just a little background. Um, so it was 2010, the earthquake in Haiti had just happened. And, um, first time I had ever been to Haiti, I landed on the ground, uh, the second week after the earthquake and spent, uh, seven days in country with a, uh, medical American mission team and, um, was in Port-au-Prince and a couple of the outlying, uh, areas, but majority of the time in Port-au-Prince and just saw the utter devastation, uh, that had taken place when I got back, I wanted to find out more about where I had been, kind of got it in reverse order. And so, uh, went online and found a book called Travesty in Haiti by a guy named Timothy T. Schwartz, ordered it, read it, and, uh, ended up finding him online, emailed, and we did a blog interview. Uh, so that's how we met. And so we've just kind of kept up over the years, periodically checking in on each other. Um, and so. I realized uh, something had come up. I don't even remember what it was. Something had come up really recently that brought to my mind again this issue of humanitarian aid and how uh, how poorly understood and how poorly executed it can be. And so I thought, man, this is uh, this is Tim's just this is his bailiwick. So uh, give a high level overview of what people mean or think is meant by humanitarian aid.
1: Well. I- I think that a lot of people when they hear humanitarian aid, they think uh, government, like you said. But uh, again, the industry has at least two major layers or or sectors. One is the private donations and the other one is the government support. And then, you know, you have other sort of categorizations inside of it. For example, the United Nations organizations like UNICEF, they operate as much like charities. They're not... In practice, and in the way they go after donations, they're not really any different than, say, Save the Children or mm-hmm. Care International. But so you have these two things: they're going after donations, and this is where I was, I was saying how the press is so important to them. But they're also going after government money, and in a lot of cases, they will wind up getting most of their money from the U.S. government. So they basically become contractors. Mm. They're nonprofit charitable organizations. They're supposed to be helping, you know, the the classic, you know, sort of the widows and the orphans Mm -hmm. and the hungry and the disease, but they become government contractors. And whenever the U S government, this is one of the points that I really tried to hit on in travesty and was a kind of a revelation to me at the time, whenever you go or the government, U S government gives out money, it's slated for specific reasons. And obviously because it's coming from Congress and the executive this money has political undertones or objectives, mm. so it fits into the U.S. political system. And this is where you get uh, some real sort of undermining of the objectives of helping people who are really in need.
0: Is this? Uh, do you find that this is um, similar regardless of administration, regardless of whether Republicans control the purse strings or Democrats are controlling? Is this like... Everybody is doing this in a way that, that benefits their party, or is it just like on autopilot and everybody just keeps doing the same thing over and over again?
1: You know, there's a very interesting aspect which I slammed into when I began studying orphans for UNICEF mm-hmm. or the orphanages. There's a, the, all the both administration, both the, the conservatives or the Republicans and Democrats, they, they, they all support foreign aid, they support it differently what I discovered when I was studying the orphanage in Haiti, what I re- what I realized was that in the 1970s or so with the uh, Wade versus uh, Roe and mm-hmm. um, Roe versus Wade decision. And that was a sort of watershed moment in U.S. history when the conservatives, because, mind you, you know, the conservatives are often or, or the evangelicals are, are often are mostly conservatives. Right. And Republican. And they took the battle from the U.S. out to the field. And, and, you know, this is when I first realized this. So you saw an explosion of orphanages in developing countries right after Roe versus Wade. And then you have these NGOs, you have secular progressive NGOs, and a lot of them are actually carrying the flag for, uh, uh, what is it, queer rights and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know,
0: uh, progressive, yeah, you you, yeah,
1: progressive yeah. agenda. And there is very much a sort of the, the war, the, you know, the cultural war is very much being fought out in developing countries. I was astounded to realize that, but I should have realized it mm. and hitting on the point that you just said, when a Democratic administration comes in, they distribute the, the aid money in promotion of that agenda. Uh-huh. And when it's the Republicans, it switches. Mm. So like with under Bush, uh, they, I think Reagan as well, they forbade support of contraceptives and, and of course, any abortion. Mm -hmm.
0: How does that play out in Haiti? Because one of the things that I realized, or one of the things that I witnessed, actually, when I was there, and then I think you touch on it in your book, and then I followed up and found, and that's this idea of outside money coming in and actually doing damage to local economies. So, uh, for instance, we were driving out, I think, past the airport one day, and this was, I don't know if you remember this or not, but this was when it was the week after um it was one of the weeks after the earthquake so it had been the third week after the earthquake i think when um a lady from i think she might have been from tennessee was put in jail in port au prince because they accused her of trying to uh basically traffic some children out of the country she she said she was getting them for adoption they said no you're trying to steal them so it was that time frame we went out past the airport uh, we were, went past the prison. I remember very distinctly coming past the prison one day, knowing that she was in there. Um, but one of the things that I noticed was these enormous bags of, I, I guess it was either rice or, or wheat or something with U.S. aid uh, stamped on the bags. And there were just bag after bag after bag after bag. And I thought after after the fact, it didn't hit me at the time, I thought this is awesome, all this food's coming in. After the fact, I'm like, wait a minute, what happens to the... To the guy on the corner who's trying to sell some food or trying to sell some wheat or trying to sell this, Um, talk about Haiti specifically. Uh, I I think I remember from your book something to do with uh, hybrid pigs or the native pigs were done away with so that pigs from from the states could be shipped in, Uh, all those Uh. kinds of factors. Uh, Talk a little bit about how aid can actually harm local economies.
1: Okay, well, you gave me a mouthful there. <laughs> um, okay, first of all, the woman's name was Laura Silsby that you're talking That's about. That's right, yes. I was even in touch with some of the people who were in jail when I, after I did the, the UNICEF uh, job. Okay. I had a terrible time with UNICEF. You know, we, we did this massive survey, and so I slammed right into this really controversial issue, and then, like I said, that, that touches on this progressive UNICEF agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, UNICEF is very progressive and they are at war. In fact, I have a, a post out there, and uh, I call it uh, Big Lies About Little, little People, uh, the war between UNICEF and the orphanages. Mm. I mean, it's, it's really quite a fascinating battle between these the orphanages in developing countries and UNICEF, and it's probably the epitome of what I was trying to say about the conservatives and the, the uh, progressives mm-hmm. fighting it out in the developing world. Okay, but getting back to this issue of... Um, of aid uh, and, and what it does to the local economy. Well, well, that happens on multiple levels and it happens over long periods of time and it happens at crisis, during crises as well. After the earthquake, you saw this, this flood of aid. You know, they were bringing yep. in massive amounts of water <laughs> in bottles. And, uh, you know, I still think about this sometimes because I buy water every two days from my house in a right. big jug and it's a neighborhood business. That is, you know, it's like motorcycles in Haiti. You know, mm-hmm. it's a real opportunity It's it, for, for people, for entrepreneurs and people, you know, in the lower middle class, which is basically poor by our standards. And so after the earthquake, they just, they just destroyed those businesses. Mm. And, and food was another thing. And we were even doing interviews. You have two things going on with food. You know, in the big picture, and this is what I wrote about in Travis, do you have the U.S. surplus food aid? You know, we have farmer support programs where we buy food from our own farmers to make sure that there's that they're making money and, and you know, to keep to support them. But then we dump it on developing countries. Mm. When I first wrote that, that was pretty controversial. And I was very much uh, one of a few. And I you, pretty much got run out of Haiti because of it. You guys said he blacklisted me. Right. At the time. And they since blacklisted me, again, for the for the death, earthquake death count. I, I'll try and touch on that later. But but So I was blacklisted. But then Obama came in right about the time, or right after, right before you and I met. He came in in 2008. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had left Haiti. I had been blacklisted. But they literally wrote me. They, I, I published a book that you read, mm-hmm. and uh, which nobody would publish, by the way. I had went to 300 different publishers online. Whoa. Yeah, a couple of them read it, but zero, nobody would touch that book. Wow. And then I finally, you know, I had it for four years. And when I finally published it on my own, which was a mess, I don't know, you must have seen the, probably the first version. I it did. looked like, it was like rough. a homemade book. Too. It was rough. <laughs> but but it flew. People really latched onto it. Yeah. And even Hill, uh, Cheryl Mills, who was Hillary Clinton's chief of staff, contacted me. Wow. Congratulated me for the book. and. And Paul Farmer invited me to meet with him at the time he was UN special envoy. So all of a sudden, I went from being, you know, an outcast mm-hmm. a pariah to being politically correct because, because you know, that's why one of the reasons they were, were so interested in me because the attention was turning to Haiti. Something mm-hmm. had to be done. Obama was the first U.S. black president, and Haiti's very special for black Americans mm-hmm. for blacks all over the world because it was the first black republic. They they threw off slavery. Right. They did the European armies, you know, the greatest armies in the in the in the world, including uh, you know the British and mm-hmm. Napoleon's best troops, and so it's quite a, a story for for people who have a sense of of African identity or, or historic African identity. So anyway, they were doing something about it, and uh, and so my life changed radically when I, you know I was literally cleaning the bottoms of boats and, and diving in in the in the ocean to you know to make ends work. meet, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, all of a sudden, I, I you know I was semi-celebrity status, and uh, you know I had the U.S. government asking me to stop by the State Department and things like this. You know, uh, okay, so I, I came back. Uh, but what I talked about in 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 Kravis again was this surplus you, or what I one of the highlights of that book and the things that grabbed the most attention. And I'm not by any means the first person to recognize it, but. I was one of the people who put it out there I guess in the way that, that Well
0: you also put it out in relation to Haiti. Other people had written it in relation to Africa I think but you might have exactly. been the first one uh exactly. to publish in relation to Haiti so that was the connection for sure.
1: Right. And you know they really they really hated me when I when I used to harp on that the the before Obama came in but then after I published that book I mean I even had USAID directors write reviews Without any contact with me, mm-hmm. saying ah, we tried to stop them. <laughs> we told them not <laughs> to do this. <laughs> okay. So I, I don't, I guess for, for listeners who might not have uh, exact, explained exactly what happened, but they, you know, in the name of, of helping Haitians who were supposed to be hungry, they bring in massive amounts of U.S. surplus food yeah. and, and, and give it away or they sell it below market prices. And it's done in two ways. It's literally given away to like school feeding programs, but it's also, uh, Distributed to what they call monetization, and so they give. A lot of times, you hear, you know, for example, the U.S. government gave Haiti 100 million dollars. Well, no, they didn't give Haiti 100 million dollars. In, in most cases, they gave Haiti 100 million dollars worth of food, mm. and then Haitian government has to sell that on the market, on their market. It's stipulated they can't like turn around and bring it back to Miami and sell it. Right. Although <laughs> some, some people had done that, but that's illegal. They have to sell it on their own market. And back then it was a very deliberate mechanism to drive Haitians out of surplus production and to, to literally crash their market and yep. drive them into the cities. Now you could say it they didn't say it in a bad way. They said this was good <laughs> for Haiti and the plan was to get people into the cities where they could work in factories. And USAID, the US government in, in developing countries in, in Haiti had had defined Haiti's what they call comparative advantage as cheap labor. So, the, so that, the the
0: the, yeah. the the realistic view is they wanted to drive them into factories, not factories owned by Haitians that were making money for Haitians who were working, but for companies like, I'm just going to speculate here, Nike and Arrow shirts and places like that, uh, that were American owned companies where they could pay Haitians a pittance and then make the real profits on the other end.
1: Yes and no. Uh, that's true that Nike, Gilden, uh, Gilden, and a lot of these are here, but I think there's a stipulation there has to be Haitian owners, uh, not maybe not 100%. But when you get into this issue of the Haitian, because they're, they're obviously not, you know, most of these Haitians that you're thinking about, they're light-skinned. A lot of them have U.S. passports, U.S. Uh, citizens, or they're dual citizens. Yeah. So, you know, there's, it gets a very gray area. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not sure it really matters, because if you're a Haitian, but, you know, you've Always lived in a you know in a mansion and, mm-hmm. and you've always vacationed in Paris and you have a house in Miami. I mean it it doesn't. These people are more they're global and that's the Haitian elite is global. They're white, light skinned or sometimes they're dark. They they get you know people will 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 enter the elite and they're dark. For, for the most part they're light skinned. They're Syrian or from the Levant. Uh, a lot of them are Americans. Uh, you know they, they they most of the big money in Haiti could be traced directly to the U.S. occupation. Wow. And they, yeah, and it's incredible. And you could see them like they're some of the big, the big, yeah, most important people. They either immigrated into Haiti during the U.S. occupation back in 1914 to 1935 or thereabouts. Uh, or they either entered that time or they got opportunities. But so what happens? And even today, so, yes. These, these This, this uh, offshore assembly sector, these factories were meant to benefit Americans, but really it's to benefit the American consumer. Mm. And the Haitian elite did, uh, you know, if they were ever owned by the U.S. companies, the Haitian elite eventually got control of them and today has control of them.
0: We're going to take a break right here and uh, come back in just a second. But uh, I do want to encourage you to check out Tim's book, Travesty in Haiti. Um, there is... The aver- I, think the- I think it's safe to say the average American doesn't know a lot about Haiti other than it's an island surrounded by water. Um, most people have never been. They know the earthquake happened. They may remember Papa Doc and Baby Doc, but, I mean, there's just no sense of history of Haiti, which is a shame because it's a fascinating history. So we're going to come back uh, after the break and uh, talk about some of Tim's ideas for how to handle some of their, how to uh, maybe change some of these bad trajectories. We'll be back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, Technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, There's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift Uh, If you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as 2 bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month, and you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor, supporter level. Uh, If you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug, uh, and these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give 250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod or Patreon is monthly, and these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks, you don't have to worry about it, you don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the two dollars is gone, the three dollars is gone, and really, uh, you never miss it. So that's Patreon.com/slash/uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. All right, uh, so we're back and uh, back with Tim Schwartz, and we're talking about Haiti and humanitarian aid. He's mentioned a couple of the things uh, that are problematic in the way that uh, governments and NGOs, those are non-government organizations. uh, We would in the States a lot of times refer to them as charities. but These are like big, 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 big charities Uh, that have a lot of government connections, but they're not government. Uh, How they have functioned in humanitarian aid. And some of the ways that uh, misinformation creates, I guess, false impressions. So uh, you you have an organization, uh, or at least a methodology. I'm not sure which is the best way to say it, called Stamp. uh, And I watched kind of your explanation of it, and you're dealing with the information that the NGOs or the governments receive from like a middle the administrator of funds not the people that are the, on the in receiving end of things. And so you're trying to connect the source of the funding with the ultimate recipient of the funding so that you can take out the puffery in the middle and people know actually what's going on. Is that a fair, if not rough representation? Yeah, that's
1: exactly right. We're doing what we actually, we call them now a beneficiary satisfaction survey. Okay. And, 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 you know, it's sort of like the worker satisfaction surveys. It's basically the same thing that they do in developing countries now. They, it, it something that exploded in about 2012 and people became, you know, with a social responsibility movement, people wanted to know, you know, directly from these, these, these people working in these, in these sweatshops in developing countries, if there, if the demands for improved conditions were being met. And so we're trying to do the same thing with the development sector. But what's let me, let me uh, interject here before I tell you about STAMP. The reason why this is so important is because of the absolutely egregious, I mean, to an incredible, even fascinating extent, corruption in the aid sector. Mm. I mean, I've been in Haiti now for, what, 27 years and, I, and for the last 10, I, you know, I was already had studied a lot of development projects, and mm-hmm. I had seen them on the inside, and I lived here so long. But for the ta- last 10 years, by virtue of, of travesty, I have been intensely engaged in surveys and evaluating development projects in Haiti. Mm. There's very few that I don't know something about, very few. And I can tell you, Marty, it's much worse than I described in travesty, wow. much worse. It's even worse than Swindle, and Swindle is pretty bad. Look, I have found, in all my years, I have found exactly one project. I'm talking no matter what you want to talk about, you know, uh, in, in, if it's an NGO, you know, some of the missions are pretty good at, you know, some of the, the Christian missions mm-hmm. with the people on the ground are pretty good, but I have found exactly one project that does what they say they do, and wow. I got to look at it. And that's uh, a project called HELP, Haiti Educational Leadership Network, that um, program that that helps scholars you know picks the mm-hmm. brightest high school graduates and gets them to college okay so let me get back to uh, this so so the reason you know to to you know for listeners uh, the idea is to do something about that and you know i'm often really struck i hear about bill gates you know all this money he's spent all these great things he thinks he's doing and and you know of course you know the motivations are noble sure. and it's, you know, we need to address these pro- these, these project these, these problems you know it, it's uh, you know, Bill, uh, what is his name, uh, William, uh, 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 I forget the guy's name, the, the development guy. You know, he calls it the other tragedy of the, poor, of the world's poor. Uh. It's, you know, the, the, so the, the first tragedy is the hunger and starvation and disease. The second tragedy is the failure to do, uh, do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Well, the third tragedy is that people are giving and they hope and they think they're doing something about it and it's not happening. And yeah. the reason is because the extreme corruption. And it's really a no brainer. Imagine an industry or imagine an opportunity in the United States where you can collect money for a service that you're going to deliver to somebody that nobody ever knows. The person right. who gives you money ever <laughs> knows whether it really got delivered. or If you give me a
0: million dollars, I'll help a guy that's 3,000 miles away, and I'll just tell you that I did it.
1: That's right. That's even worse. Not just will they not hear from the guy, but the only person who tells me anything is the person who gets the money. Yeah. So and this is what exactly what the interviews do and they do exactly what any business anybody would do. They tell the the donor what what they want to hear. That yes, we we helped this this person. And they go out there and they find these examples and and look I've been a part of this. How many times I've heard get us a narrative when I'm doing a survey. And what they mean is they want you to come back with a really rosy story that they can put on their internet site. And, and, and I, by the way, I don't think I've ever done it because I can't find them. Right. They are really <laughs> few. The interesting thing about this, this is what I really go after in Swindle is that the Hastings themselves, they understand the game. They understand the system and they will try to be victim. Uh, you know, this, I wrote a lot about this and they even call it victim. So they will try to fit the category that, they, that the NGOs are slated to help. So, they actually create the NGOs with their stories because you know, this is something else I've discovered in the last 10 years about aid. About it's all about selling stories mm. because donors won't give to something unless it's really dramatic and, you know, it's emotional, like child slavery, mm. and, you know, in, you know, indiscriminate rape of, of women of all ages, from, you know, from babies to, to, to the elderly. These, these stories, and that's just what they are absolute, you know, exaggerations and sometimes complete fabrications, they're what get people to give. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of problems with that. When you tell uh, or exaggerate or you collect money for a phantom problem, well, then you need to address that phantom problem and you're not focused on the real problems. And so the Haitians have filled the niche. A lot of, you know, the, the Haitians that are trying to to get money, mostly opportunists themselves, aid entrepreneurs themselves, just at the lowest level, mm. and so they're perfectly willing to tell a great narrative once they know. I go through this all the time in focus groups. You know, we do a lot of focus groups, mm. and I have to tell them, "Look, guys, okay, that's great. You know, I know you're all victims, but let's get to the real problems, okay?" <laughs> and, you know, and and then they will listen. They're like, "Yeah," because they really want the aid to be targeted for their real problems. Yeah, but they're so jaded. They're so They're so – they've seen so much aid come down the road and not address their problems Mm -hmm. and most of it gets squandered that they just want whatever they can get. An interesting thing, by the way, uh, Marty, I just did a project that brought a lot of my research into – because I cover everything. I've done a lot of research on uh, agricultural projects that are targeted to help promote Haitian exports Mm -hmm. because while they were flooding the Haitian market, they also tried to promote – what Haiti produces best, and, and there are always things that the US doesn't produce, like cacao, chocolate, yeah. and mangoes. And so the three big ones are coffee, cacao, and mangoes, and three things that the US does not produce. So the USAID had projects that helped these. They have spent, the USAID and the World Bank together, approximately, each of them have spent approximately equal amounts. When I say World Bank, I close IDB too. They have spent over $600 million in the last 30 years. And they have less exports of all three of those crops today. Now, now mind you, they spent that six hundred million to promote exports. They have less exports in all three of those crops today than they had when they started.
0: How does that even? And, how does that even? I mean, they could have bought. Uh, they could have bought all the stuff. Can you imagine? How in the how in the world does that happen? Just the corruption. Yeah, the irony,
1: well, the irony too is that uh, the biggest limitation. To the peasants, what we call peasants, the rural farmers in Haiti, small farmers, that's what they call peasants, and they're captured. They can't can't reach the international market because there's an elite Uh, between them and a state. That's why they call them peasants. So anyway, the biggest limitation on them selling their crops is getting them to the city. And so the roads are atrocious. That $600 would have built great roads. But let me tell you the punchline on this. The ILO recently hired me to look at those same crops and to add a couple more uh, uh, castor bean oil. Now bread, defi- define
0: who ILO
1: is. ILO, International Label Organization. Okay. So these guys are the most sensitive organization in the United Nations, most sensitive organization in the United Nations to the poor, right, supposedly, or one of the most sensitive. Let me tell you, here's the irony. I just told you they spent $600 million, Right. Now, remember, too, I'm I'm working all sorts of different jobs, so I get a kind of an overview. We've got the food security issue at the same time. So people are hungry, right? Mm -hmm. So it's something that always struck me. Okay, we got food security, and they're trying to export the crops. Well, wait a minute. In the last 30 years, we've gone from producing 80% of the food consumed in Haiti to importing 60%. So why aren't they eating their own food, you want to ask? Okay, so now the real punchline is... At the end of that research I just did last time, I went and looked at the local market price for every one of the crops they were trying to promote and export, and they were three to five times more expensive on the local market than the exporters were paying for them. (laughs) Oh,
0: my word. Uh, So anyway, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this conversation, kind of free-ranging. He's a great guy. And um, pick up his book, Travesty in Haiti. I'll link all three of his books in the episode notes. Uh, but try to grab those. Uh, it's it's full of information. You often ask, is the book well documented? Well, he's the guy that does documentation, so these are really interesting and thorough books. Uh, and there are other books about the the history of Haiti, and he referenced really just real thinly the U.S. occupation of Haiti in the early 1900s, and how that has led to um the birth of so many light skinned people there. Uh, also worth looking up. So there's just a lot of information, a lot of backstory. Uh, to Haiti, that's incredibly important to understanding some of the dynamics there. Uh, as always, thanks for joining this episode, and I look forward to uh, interacting with you on the Twitters. It's at Marty Duran or at Uncommentary Pod. Have a good one. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcaster you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com, uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Sole Gloria. This is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.